the last You are listening to the Freshwater Bite Podcast. I am so pumped for today's episode. I have been waiting, waiting for this time of the year. Um, Every year I look forward to doing this event, which is called the Detroit River Walleye Run. And my guest today is Lance Valentine. Lance is the man to go to for the Detroit River Walleye Run. He's going to give us everything that we need to know in order to be more successful on the river. And uh, I just had a blast talking to him. And we are going to talk jig heads. We're going to talk hook sizes, plastics, live bait, rigging, line, rods. Get you guys all geared up and uh, what to do and get ready for this Detroit River Run. And so you guys can be more successful. And um, hopefully this uh, this podcast will hit home with you guys and you'll be able to use what you learned today out on the water. And then we can hear about all the, the big fish that you caught. So let's get into it right now and we'll start this off. Oh, there we go. Perfect. That's awesome. Dude, you sound great now. Well, I've got, I just went and bought a nice little headset. and That's kind of rocking. That'll be nice for... Keep my hands free when I'm working on something. Ah, boy, I like that. Holy moly! So I brought the I brought the uh, the, uh, the headphones to you. Yes, you did. I appreciate oh. that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Welcome to 2018, man. Yeah, I know. Well, I, you know, I, I I pick on my dad too, but I guess I'm just as bad sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I really appreciate you doing this and and, and coming. No, on my pleasure. Here. So tell us all who you are and what you're all okay. about. Okay. Uh, well, I am. My name is Lance Valentine. I'm from uh, the Flint, Michigan area. Kind of not as bad as you've heard about. <laughs> um, but uh, I am a full-time fishing educator. I started Walleye 101 back in 1997. Uh, basically just doing some seminars, mostly teaching uh, sonar and GPS. Actually, sonar and, L- and Loran C before GPS really came about. And... Uh, I was doing a lot of stuff at local Gander Mountain stores, and a guy came to me one night and said, hey, do you know anything about fishing Saginaw Bay? And I said, sure. So we spent about a half hour in the in the store there at Gander Mountain talking about what to use and what to buy and rods and reels. And he looked at me and said, you know what? He goes, this is awesome. He goes, this is just like going to college and taking a walleye 101 class. And a light bulb went off in my head, and uh, I asked the manager of the store if I could come back next week and do a trolling seminar. And he said, Yes, and three years later, I was quitting my job at the bank, and I was a full-time seminar speaker, tournament fisherman, fished the professional walleye trail for five years, and uh, didn't really enjoy being gone as much as I was gone, and didn't really enjoy some of the things that go with uh, being a full-time tournament anger. And my wife looked at me one day and said, why don't you become a fishing guide? And I said, who the heck would ever pay me to take them fishing? And um, so here we sat doing... 50, 60 seminars a year, and we'll do 160 to 170 charter trips this year on Detroit River, Saginaw Bay, Lake Erie. We've got a line of instructional DVDs. We've got some custom tackle we've designed. Uh, we just got the whole thing going on to, to help people catch more fish, and that's what we get up in and do every day. Well, I don't think you're doing too bad for yourself. Um, let's talk about uh, why you got out of the tournament angling part of it and how you focus more you know, on your passion, which seems to be uh, teaching people how to fish and uh, creating your own tackle 
stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I, I tell you honestly, the the, the biggest <laughs> the biggest thing with tournament fishing is I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> you know, when when you compete at that top level, you better be on your game all the time. And right. you know, I, I just I I had I was working at a marina, so I was back and forth from work and. I didn't have the time to go out and really, really, you know, hone my skills because, you know, to get the money to fish, I had some sponsor dollars coming in, but to get enough money to really do it right, you know, I had to work. So I was going to new places I'd never been before. I'd go into lakes I'd never fished before. I was doing techniques I'd never learned and trying to learn all of that while pre-fishing. And it was just, it was just too much. And um, my wife, like I said, suggested the charter thing. I'd been doing the seminars at that time for six or seven years and we were getting 70 to 150 guys coming to our, our walleye one-on-one seminar series. And I kind of had a built-in uh, customer base and the guys responded very, very well. And uh, I started guiding in, you know, 2004 full-time in 2005. And, and here we are all these years later. And I, like you said, I, I am, I am living the dream, but it is, you know, it is work. It is a job. You know, like I said, we've got a, we've got a, a web store and all kinds of things and all, you know, I do all the, all my own paperwork and accounting and all that stuff. And so there's, there's some work to it, but man, oh man, what a lucky guy I am to get a chance to, to do stuff like this and travel around the whole Midwest and do seminars and meet guys and, and get guys on my boat and go fishing and, and really focus on teaching them and not just taking them out to catch fish, but making sure that when they leave the boat, they're a better angler than they were when they got on the boat. Yeah. I mean, I, I've never fished a professional tournament or any tournament really other than local ones in my life. So I've, I've heard in the past that it's, it's an intense grind and, uh, you know, it, I don't think it's uncommon though for, for anglers to do, you know, exactly what you did kind of open up your own business. A lot of guys just like that, that guide life every day and, and educating anglers. And at the end of the day, it's, you know, about being happy and doing what you want to do. <laughs> I, I think that's the big thing, right? Is being able to, you know, I, I tell people, when people ask me real quick, you know, what I do, they, you know, I tell them I'm in the smile business and they kind of look at me and, you know, their response is, well, you're a dentist, you're an orthodontist. I said, no, I'm a fishing guide. And they kind of look at me kind of weird and go, what does a fishing guide have to do with smiles? And I said, have you ever seen, have you ever seen anybody holding up a fish in a picture and not smiling? <laughs> uh, and they kind of laugh. And, and that's my job. My job is to help people smile more. My job is to help people take their limited recreation time and teach them how to enjoy it more by catching more fish faster than they are now. So um, that's kind of my job description as fishing educator and uh, very, very, very fortunate, very, very blessed to have what I have. Yeah, and that's how I found out about you. I know I know you fish Saginaw Bay and uh, Lake Erie. Um, but actually what drew me to you is when I was in, um, Grand Rapids to the outdoor show many years ago, probably five years ago, you always put on a seminar about jigging the Detroit river. Yep. And to me, I, I sat down and listened to your seminar and I walked away from that seminar learning a ton. And I just want, I, I kind of wanted to focus on that a little bit more and explain to everybody what is so special about the Detroit River and kind of tell them, you know, how all the fisheries from Saginaw Bay, like Huron goes down into Erie, you know, what's so special about that stretch of body of water on the river? Well, you know, when you, when you look at the whole ecosystem, right, it's, it starts in Saginaw Bay, comes around to uh, Lake Huron on the east side of Michigan that flows into uh, St. Clair River uh, and then goes into Lake St. Clair and then the Detroit River comes out of Lake St. Clair and goes into Lake Erie and, uh, not only is there a really good population of walleyes in the Detroit River that live there year-round, 
but you've got you know 90, 92, the numbers are somewhere around 92 to 95 million walleye in Lake Erie, and a lot of those fish are from year classes that right now are you know 6 to 12, 13 pounds, and a lot of those fish come up and use the Detroit River to spawn, and there's a ton of fish in Lake St. Clair that actually come from Lake St. Clair and come down into the Detroit River to spawn. So you've got this 30-mile river from the bottom of Lake St. Clair to the top of Lake Erie, and not only is there a lot of fish there that live there forever, but you get this big influx of fish from Lake Erie and this influx of fish from Lake St. Clair that come in you know, a, a week or two before spawning. They spawn, and they spend three or four weeks in the river uh, recuperating and, and eating the, the, the massive amount of bait that lives in Detroit River, and you've got a perfect situation for just a fantastic walleye fishery and that's why everybody loves fishing detroit river uh in april and may anybody that lives close to here or within driving distance wants to come here in april and may and take advantage of that great fishing yeah that's amazing so they live in there from three to four weeks even after they spawn oh yeah yeah that, you know that's the biggest misconception right people call the detroit river fishing they call it the walleye run and it's really not a walleye run when i when i think of a run i think of salmon or steelhead uh, fish that have to go back to the same place. They run up, they do their deal, and they leave. And that's really not what happens in Detroit. It's more of a migration. So the water's a little warmer. Uh, the conditions are a little better. You know, fish, walleyes like current to spawn. There's a ton of bait attracted to the current, you know, smelt, shiners, shad. All that bait is attracted to the current in early season. And that just creates this big, giant buffet of food and great spawning conditions. So these fish will come up early. They'll spend a week or two feeding. They'll do or they'll feed to get ready for the spawn. They'll take a day or two to rest, and they'll spawn for a day or two. And once they're done, they don't leave. They hang out in that river because there's just so much bait in so much different habitat, from five foot flats, you know, with rocks to the 50 foot river channel and everything in between. They don't need to leave that river to recuperate. And a lot, a lot of guys stop fishing, you know, third week of April, late April, and I continue to guide down there all the way through May, and the walleye fishing actually, numbers-wise, is better the first, second, third week of May than it ever is in April. So uh, it's not a run. It's a migration, and just don't think it ends with a quick one- or two-week window. It's really a 10- or 12-week window where you can take advantage of not only great fishing but a chance at, at, at the fish of a lifetime every day you're out there on that river. Huh. You know, that's... I'm glad you touched on that because I think that's a huge misconception, like you said. I think a lot of the guys pack it up out of the river when they say, like you said, the third week in April, and they think it's done. Some guys think that they're, you know, ahead of the curve. Like right now is March 29th. You know, I, I don't know what the weather's like down there, but I know it's been pretty chilly, right? Uh, it's been, you know, it's been come and go, right? You know, today we're, you know, low 30s. Yesterday we were mid 50s. It's just that crappy kind of transition from, you know, nobody knows what it's going to be, right? Right. So you can get some right now, but the like the huge rush or, you know, it, it, may, it may be later than what people think. You know, I, I have always found I'm a, I'm a pretty detailed record keeper. It's one of the things that I do. I, I believe in, in keeping good records. And uh, my peak big fish time for, you know, the largest number of the largest fish is always concentrated right around the middle of April. April 10th, April 20th is kind of where it really happens. And I think a lot has to do with, you know, people get tight, get caught up in water temperature. Water temperature is a piece of it, but it's not the only piece. And I think, you know, length of day uh, doesn't change regardless of what water temperature is, right? The, the length of day, April 1st, is not any longer if it's 80 degrees than it is if it's 20 degrees. So I think length of day has a lot to do with it. You know, the full moon in April has a lot to do with it. 
Uh, kind of the same stuff that you look at when you start looking for big bucks, right? We start looking at moon phase. We start looking at length of day. We start looking at all these things. And it's not just water temperature. It's a lot more factors than that. Uh, and guys pay too much attention to water temperature. The water gets a certain temperature. They go, wow, the run's over. And it's not even anywhere, anywhere close to being over. Right, right. I got you. Okay, that's cool. So, um, so I guess, you know, someone coming to the river for the first time, let's say you're from Minnesota or Wisconsin and you're going to be coming over, uh, you know, we, har we harped in on uh, the time of the year. The, the, I think the next thing would be to let people know what kind of setup you need for, uh, jigging the Detroit river. And then maybe even before we get to that, I guess maybe if you could tell us what are some key areas that guys could, uh, you know, launch from to get an access to the Detroit river. That, that's, that's a great question. Um, I, I prefer the mid-river. There, there's there's ramps and public access up and down the whole Detroit River. Um, you know, the most commonly known area in Detroit is what's called the Trenton Channel. That's the lower Detroit River. Uh, there's a couple of good boat ramps down there that have lots of parking. Uh, the problem with down there is, there's number one, there's lots of anglers. Number two, there's just a ton of snags. It's a very, very, very hard piece or hard section of the river um, to fish. I prefer the middle of the river around a town called Wyandotte. So if you've got a map and you look at Wyandotte, uh, there's a really, really good launch in Wyandotte. There's a really good launch just north of Wyandotte in a little town called Ecorse. Uh, there's a place called Bellinger Park just north of there. Uh, there's a place called Delray, which is another good uh, launch. So that middle part of the river from you know, basically the Ambassador Bridge down past Wyandotte, if you can find that on a map, um, that is an absolute great part of the river because – not only are there a lot of fish there, but the fish that go there stay there longer than they do at the bottom part of the river. The bottom part of the river, the Trenton Channel, the fish come in, they do their deal, and they go back to the lake. The further up the river they get, the longer they stay. So that middle of the river, those fish stay longer. They're more aggressive longer. You get more fish that come up there. And here's the beauty of it. There's a whole lot less snags. You can fish and fish and fish and not lose any jigs. So that middle part of the river, from the Ambassador Bridge south to a town called Wyandotte, if you concentrate on that part of the river, there's three or four really good boat launches there. That's where I would tell guys to think about if they're going to come over to concentrate most of their fishing right in that area there. Yeah, and let me just tell everybody out there, I've been jigging the Detroit River now for, I don't know, over 10 years. And that area that he's talking about, the Trenton Channel, when I say that you you get snagged up, <laughs> I would say you get snagged up, uh, I don't know, you're changing your line. If you don't change your line every, three times every five minutes, I think you're doing pretty dang good, but... You, you get a lot. You get a lot of practice with tying knots if yes, you fish there. Exactly right. And your hands get lots of cuts in it. <laughs> so the next, is, uh, the, the so the other thing to be careful about is you know that area, that stretch that you're talking about. I mean, one side is Canada waters. Is that correct? That is correct. And the so so obviously that's the east side, and then the west side is um, you know Michigan or the U.S. So yep. what do people need to be aware of if they want to fish both sides of the river? Well, if, if you want to fish in Canada, uh, there's, there's a couple things that are important. First of all, uh, the border is basically right down the middle of the river. Um, so you can kind of assume that the middle of the river is the border. If you have a Navionics map chip, uh, you can zoom in and it'll kind of show you where the border actually is. But uh, you cannot fish in Canada without a Canadian license. You have to have a Canadian fishing license, which you can get online. You can buy a one-day, uh, three-day, or a full year. Uh, you can only fish with one rod in Canada when you're jigging the river. In our side, on the Michigan side, you can jig with two rods. But on the Americans, on the Canadian side, you can only fish with one rod. That's important. 
And even though, you know, guys may have heard that you had to call in and report in and go into Canada, uh, you no longer have to do that. You don't have to call in and tell them you're coming, but you still, if you are in Canadian waters, you have to have the ability to prove citizenship. So a passport, a driver's license, uh, or, I mean, I'm sorry, an enhanced driver's license, which you have to prove citizenship to get. Or a regular driver's license with a birth certificate. That works also. But you've got to be able to prove that you are a U.S. citizen. Um, other than that, have a fishing license, one rod, and be able to prove you're a citizen. You can go back and forth across the border all you want as long as you don't touch land or drop anchor. Okay. <clears throat> so everyone coming over from uh, other states, in case you didn't know that, beware when you're on the river in that narrow stretch. Now, when you get down, I know, towards the Trenton Channel, it's a little bit more uh, wider and you have more real estate to work with on the U.S. side. But if you're going up in that stretch of water, it's a little bit more narrower and, uh, you know, you got to be careful of where that line starts and stops. Yeah, when you when you get south of um, basically Gross Eel, uh, the, the Trenton Channel, the American side is on the west side. And basically you can assume on the east side is basically Canadian water, although it's not exactly true but you can kind of assume that that's where it is yeah i'm looking at a map right now it's a little bit wider uh, on the east side of Grozeal, but not much yep so if you know everyone coming over they're bringing their tackle they're they're loading up their gear um you know l let's walk everyone through if someone were to step on your boat because obviously you're you know very successful at catching these things and you've been doing it a long time and you've got it down to a science and you've even got your own jig heads and your own signature series of tackle can you walk everyone through what a typical setup would be to make them the most successful on the river yeah, sure. Well, there's 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 three things you have to do to be successful on the river, and the, and the first one is obviously you got to be fishing where the fish are, and you know that's a sonar thing, and that's following the groups and following the packs and look, you know, don't be afraid to look for nets and see guys catching fish and pull into the same depth. Um, but being on the fish obviously is number one. And once you do that, two things are absolutely critical. You have to keep your line completely vertical, and you have to be able to feel your jig. Um, and not just your jig hit the bottom, but you got to be able to feel subtle differences. Because when fish bite in a river, that, that jig is just going straight up and down. And what the fish are going to do is that that jig drops, they're going to stop it from going to the bottom. Or when it hits the bottom, they'll suck it off the bottom. When you go to lift, it'll just be heavy. So if you're using a light jig, and this is where this is where it's really fun to do my jig fishing seminar because everybody thinks the lightest jig possible is the best. That's absolutely wrong in the river because all a bite is going to be is your jig is just going to be a little bit heavier or a little bit lighter. So the lighter your jig is, the harder it is to feel, the harder it is to feel something different. So we use heavy jigs, three quarter ounce, one ounce jigs that we designed specifically for fishing in heavy current. Um, and the whole idea is if I can feel that jig and I can feel it hit the bottom, and I know it feels an ounce. If it weighs an ounce and an eighth, I know it's a fish. If it weighs seven-eighths of an ounce, I know it's a fish. If you're fishing a light jig and you're constantly trying to figure out if you're hitting the bottom, a lot of those little changes in your jig are actually bites and you won't catch a lot of fish. So we like to fish big jigs so you can feel your jig. And then obviously big jigs help keep your line straight and help you keep vertical. So heavy jigs, we use no stretch line. We use sunline. Uh, SX1 braid and 12-pound test. They're a very low-diameter, low-stretch, bright yellow fishing line. We tie direct to our jig. And then we use a very, very short, stiff, five-and-a-half-foot, medium-heavy uh, rod. And that's on purpose because you're trying to keep that jig vertical in a circle about the size of a coffee cup. And a lot of guys make a mistake when they go down to Detroit River for the first time to stay vertical. They watch their line from the tip of the rod to the surface of the water. And that's absolutely irrelevant because – 
none of that line has been affected by the current yet. So what I like to do is watch my line about four to six inches below the current and the surface of the water and make sure it's vertical from there down to the bottom. Now I know my jig is vertical. And to do that, you need a short rod. So when you jig, you're basically staying right over top of your fishing line. It makes it a whole lot easier to stay straight and keep that jig straight up and down. Yeah, so the shorter the rod, the more control you have closer to your body. And whether, you know, further out from the boat, the more flex you're going to have in your rod, that's, you're saying you're not going to be able to keep that line straight up and down. Correct. You, you can't see because now you've got the refraction of not only the line and the current, but you've also got the refraction if you're looking at it, your line at an angle. If they get that short rod, you are literally standing right on top of your fishing line. You can make sure that it's vertical all the time. Vertical, you're not going to snag as much. You're going to catch a lot more fish and feel those subtle bites a whole lot better. Why do you think? Why do you guys tie directly to the jig head to your um, to your super line? Uh, well, I don't think any of the reasons that guys give me for not doing it are valid, right? So, uh, you know, I, I get a lot of guys tell me that. Uh, you know, the biggest one for me is guys say, you know, I use a leader because you know the water's cold, the water's clear, walleyes can see pretty good. I don't want them to be able to see my fishing line. And my response to that is a very simple. How many fish every year get stuck in gill nets? Right. And gill nets are very, very thick. You know, they're out in the middle of, of non-moving water and fish just swim right into them, right? On the river, that fish has maybe five seconds to see your jig. Maybe. Pop, 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 and it's gone. He doesn't have time to look at that fishing line. If you put a swivel and you put a leader in that, you've basically broken the connection. And the reason we use that no-stretch fishing line is now anything that happens to the jig, a fish sucks that jig in, a fish stops it, picks it off the bottom, anything that happens, you feel it through that straight connection to your jig. You break that with a swivel and a leader, and now you've lessened the, the ability to actually feel what's going on down on your jig. So I, I think the few fish that may be a little bit line shy occasionally, I feel that I catch a lot more fish that are very, very subtle bites I never would have felt with a leader. Uh, I think you catch more of those subtle bites than you ever lose fish not biting because you've got, you know, thick yellow line on your, on your jig. Right. Okay. Now, and there's lots of types of jig heads too, right? Obviously there's gumball, yeah. there's, you know, what, what are the ones that, um, that you have on your website there? Well, when, when we, when we started, <laughs> when we started fishing down there, we fished with light jigs and, and we never used a round ball jig. We always used, uh, we used to do a lot of live bait fishing with shiners. We, we used a flat sided jig. And then we used a light, you know, up to five-eighths of an ounce, you know, pointed jig head if we used plastics. And the whole idea of a round jig head, now they are inexpensive, and that's the biggest thing I think people like. But the problem is with a round ball jig head, when it goes and it hits the bottom, if you let any slack at all on your fishing line, it's going to hit maybe on the bottom, maybe on the side, maybe even up towards the top because there's nothing to keep that jig from once it hits the bottom rolling. So what happens is that jig rolls, it creates line twist, and that hook is laying on the bottom of the river a lot of times, either dulling the hook or creating more snags. So we designed a jig that has a pointed nose, and a lot of the weight is on the bottom of the jig. So what happens is that jig gets in the water, the nose turns into the current, so now it stays straight. And what happens is the, the water catches that little those little balls or bulbs of weight on the bottom and the side of the jig, push that jig down, and then what really happens, where we really are proud of what we designed, is our jig doesn't hit horizontal. It hits on the bottom of the nose. So it hits the bottom. If you keep that line tight when you drop it, 
that jig hook stays up. It doesn't go to the bottom. So now the jig is out the bottom. The hook's going to stay sharp. As fish suck that jig off, they, you know they're going to get the hook, and you're not dealing with snags because that hook never, ever gets a chance to get down in the rocks, in the wood, and all the stuff that's on the bottom of the river. So the right jig, fish is heavier. You get a lot less snags. You stay vertical a whole lot easier, and you'll catch a whole lot, whole lot more fish. It's a whole lot easier to feel. And we know that walleye like to pin their bait sometimes <clears throat> down to the bottom. So if they're, the bottom. if they're feeding yep. down, that hook's already kind of up on a 45-degree angle. So you exactly, might... exactly right. And it, that, that, that's such an awesome point, Lee. A lot of guys don't understand that that happens more times than not is the fish actually sucks the jig off the bottom, and then when you go to lift, it feels heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way we designed our jig – uh, we made a change about six years ago is our last change. And what we did is we moved the line tie forward. We tried one thirty second, two thirty second, and three thirty seconds of an inch. We, we, we built a couple molds and we ended up at one thirty second of an inch further back. And what that did is now the jig used to fall straight horizontal. So the bottom of the jig hit the bottom. What that change did is that caused that jig to hit with the hook up. So now what happens if you're, you know, if you're like me, when you start to realize that those fish are actually sucking that jig off the bottom, I will change my jigging motion a little bit. And instead of just a, a real slow lift, drop, you know, bottom up, bottom up, I'll go bottom up, bottom, and I'll put slack in my line, let that jig sit in the bottom for just a, a split second longer, let those fish have a time with no, no tight line, slack line, so they can suck that jig off the bottom. Gotcha. The way our, the way our jig's designed, it hits first, nose down. Then when you drop that slack, now it goes horizontal. And then you lift it up. So there is no chance for that jig to roll over when you put that little bit of slack on it. So all that stuff together really creates a system that catches a lot of fish uh, when you're doing it that a lot of guys may miss because they don't have the right equipment. You put a lot of thought into that. You know, it's funny to think that just a hunk of lead on a hook is that big of a deal. But I've got about 100 pounds of jig heads in my storage shed that aren't right. And, And we started with... Production molds, you'll see a lot, you know, a lot of guys now, it's funny, five, six years ago, and you, you've been around, you know, five, six years ago, you couldn't find a one-ounce jig that wasn't round other than ours. Right. Now you go to a show, everybody's got one, right? But a lot of guys are using regular production molds that you can buy, and the problem with those molds are two things. There's one that's a little bit long and has a lot of weight sticking out the side. The problem with that design is if you let any slack in your line at all, those two pieces of weight on either side make that jig act like an airplane jig and it actually spins. Okay. It actually rotates down, doesn't go down, straight down. And the other one is that minnow head style jig. And the problem with that, if you look at it, instead of being a point that goes into the current, it's actually a 45 degree angle faced up to create kind of the mouth of the jig. So the current actually is pushing that jig backwards. It's not fishing vertical. It's actually being pushed back downstream. So it's harder to keep that jig vertical. So we, wanted, we knew exactly what we wanted. We worked with uh, some guys down in Georgia at Big Bite Bait Company. Um, you know, we spent a lot of money on molds, a lot of time fishing, a lot of time watching jigs on camera. And we finally got what we think is, is one of the best jigs for fishing, uh, vertical jigging and heavy current. Yeah, I would agree. What do you think about um, those sickle hooks that everyone's starting to get into? You know, great question. I'm not a big sickle hook guy. Just from my experience, my experience, my personal experience. I'll just add, I'll I'll just add that neither am I, but go ahead. (laughs) My experience with sickle hooks has been that I haven't found a sickle hook yet where the point is sturdy. Uh, 
a lot of, you know, you, you fish it for 15, 20 minutes, you got to sharpen it, you fish it again, and the point's gone. The, the point just rolls over. There's something about those sickle hooks that they just don't have a very, very strong point. And here's something we found. This is pretty interesting. Here's something we found out when we were testing jigs. A lot of guys like big, wide gap jigs. That's that's one of the comments we get about our jigs is, man, I'd like a wider gap. And I go, you know, why? Well, I'll catch fish more. I go, nah, nope, stop for a minute. You have to understand the science. And this is something we spent a lot of time looking at and learning about. When you take a jig, and let, so you turn a jig 90 degrees. So basically what you're trying to do is you create a situation where when you set the hook, you're pulling straight out. Now, that doesn't happen, but that's kind of how we how we test penetration. So we take a jig, we, we turn it 90 degrees up, and we pull straight up. The closer the hook is to parallel, so you've got a line of pull going straight up from the jig, and the closer that the hook point is to that line, so you've got two parallel lines, the pull going up and the path that the hook point is going to travel. The closer those two lines are together, the more the force that you use in your hook set gets transferred to the actual hook point. So if you've got a big wide gap, you may pull up with 10 pounds pressure. You may only get four points of pressure at the hook. Right. Right. If you take that gap and shrink it by half, you pull with 10 pounds. You may get six or seven pounds at the hook point. So even though it does look like a bigger, wider gap would hook more fish, you actually get less power and less penetration force to the tip of the hook the wider that gap is and that's another issue i think with the sickle hooks yeah in my experience with them i just couldn't get them to stay in the same shape that i got them in so if i got hooked up on a snag you know you bring your line up um i just brought my jig up a couple times after getting snagged up and i bring it up and that hook is bent outwards more like you said that gap the further that gap is away and things like that i feel like the metal or whatever it is in the hook just becomes weaker and weaker and then, you know, while I still have my jig head, I still have to untie because my hook is bent. And like you said, the tips broke off. And I'm like, man, I'm going through these things like candy. But <laughs> I thought the rocks would bring me down. But now, you know, something else is bringing me down. This hook isn't holding up. So that's what that was. That's been my experience with them so far. Yep. They might work oh, for that's... some guys. And if they can get them to work, that's great. But, you know, for me, I would I would say, you know, have both in the boat. And, uh, and you guys can be the judge of that and see what works better. Yep. But your jig yep. heads have been working great for many folks, for I know, for a number of years. Well, that's good to hear. You know, and, and, and you know, obviously we like what we have, but we're constantly screwing around, right? So we've we've got a couple little changes we made this year to, to try. So I've got, you know, 50 jigs we've made a little little modification to. And, and we try sickle hooks. And, you know, we put sickle hooks in. We build a new mold and put sickle hooks in ours. We put wider gap. We put lighter wire hooks we, we you know we're constantly changing because we know we've got something good but we know we don't have the perfect jig yet so somewhere there's something that's going to make that jig a little bit better and we constantly keep looking for you know little subtle changes that that that, that could make it a little bit better right okay so we covered rods we covered line um jig has three quarter ounce to one ounce one quick question on that um some guys think that they can go lighter in the jig head if they've got kind of that like you said, like your jig head where it allows that water to cut the current. Is that true or is that something that just depends on how fast the current is that day? When I when I started fishing down there, Lee, I was a 3-8 ounce guy with live bait. That's how I fished. And because uh, that was the theory, right? The lightest jig, the better. Now here, again, when you're talking to guys, and I, and I, I love the science of fishing. I, I love the reasons why, right? So... When I ask a guy, okay, why do you think light jigs work better? Like, well, it's easier for the fish to get in their mouth. I go, aha, stop. It's actually not. Let's let's take a look. So if you've got a light jig, and even though, even if you can feel the bottom, 
you take a light jig, when you hit that jig on the bottom and you lift it up, it starts to glide downstream before it starts to fall. Okay. So if a, if a fish is below that jig, he physically has to pull that jig down to him into his mouth. Right. He's got to pull through that water, right? Mm-hmm. If you take a if you take a heavy jig, the minute you stop that heavy jig going forward, it instantly wants to go where? Right back down. Right. It's actually that big jig is actually going back towards that fish with more energy and inertia than a light jig is. A fish does not have to a fish does not have to suck any water to pull a big jig towards him. It's coming already. All he has to do is open his mouth and let it fall in. Whereas with a light jig, a fish physically has to exert some energy and some force and suck in water to actually pull that jig through the water to him. Okay, that makes sense. So when you think when you think about it, a heavier jig is actually number one, it's falling more often. Number two, it's falling straighter down. And number three, it's falling with more energy actually into the fish as opposed to the fish having to use his energy to suck that jig into his mouth. Gotcha. So think about throwing popcorn up and catching it with your mouth or throwing up an M&M with peanuts in it. That is an absolute perfect analogy right there. <laughs> that's, uh, a, that's a perfect analogy. Awesome. So uh, can you give us, I don't know, two or three colors, jig heads that uh, seem to do pretty good on the Detroit River? I don't. I fish 99% of the time my jig head has chartreuse on it somewhere. Okay. Um, straight chartreuse, fire tiger, uh, chartreuse and orange. We call sunrise chartreuse and pink. We call bubble gum. Uh, we have a a, a green chartreuse jig. It's not green and chartreuse. It's actually the color green chartreuse is a combination of fluorescent lime and chartreuse. One of my favorites, but I like that chartreuse look. I think fish can see it. Uh, they can hone in on it from further away and in the river. That's important. They can see that bait coming a long way. So I like chartreuse jig heads, but saying that, uh, I almost always fish a dark body, dark brown, purple, black, uh, you know, dark green, maybe like a pumpkin uh, or natural, you know, like a like a, 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 a white or a pearl or maybe even a little bit of blue. I, I don't I don't screw around with really bright worms, you know, chartreuses and oranges. I don't do that on my on my bodies. My bodies are dark, but I do like any any jig that's got chartreuse. Uh, is going to be a favorite of mine. Okay. And when you talk about the body, these are obviously just um, artificial baits with like, uh, you know, like yep. a worm looking. They call it the wine dot worm and, yep. and or just uh, what, a four inch shad or something like that? Yeah. So so we carry four shapes. We, we have a worm that we make uh, a little different than the wine dot worm designed to stay on your hook a whole lot longer. Uh, you can catch 20, 25 fish with our worm as opposed to, you know, two or three with a wine dot worm. So again, efficiency, right? Uh, we fish a four, we, we make a four inch jerk minnow. That's kind of a little, just a little variation on the finesse fish that, that guys use. And I would tell, you know, don't go to the river without, you know, some finesse fish or zoom flukes or our jerk minnow. Uh, then we fish a worm that we started fishing about five, six years ago, uh, called a disc worm. So it's a four inch worm, got a really small twister tail, but it's got a bunch of rings or disc on the worm. Uh, that's been really good for us. And then I fish a big four inch paddle tail. Uh, just a big pale tail shad. Now, what's important, go back to keeping records again, right? I will tell you that every day you're better off to have the right body shape and profile in the wrong color than you are to have the right color in the wrong shape. The shape is much more important because each of those four shapes do three things. Number one, they each imitate a different style of bait. Number two, each one has its own fall rate. So each one, based on the bulk, and the mass of the bait is going to fall to the bottom at a different speed. Obviously, the worm falling the fastest, the big, heavy, um, 
paddle tail shad falling the slowest. And then each body has what we call a different fall angle, which means that worm basically falls right straight back to the bottom. But you put that big bulky uh, paddle tail shad or that disc worm with the disc and the water resistance and the twister tail, it'll actually won't fall straight down. It'll actually fall back towards the fish down current. So we're getting a, a different profile with each one, a different fall rate and a different fall angle with each of those body shapes. So when I leave in the morning, I have two or three different shapes on. Then once we dial into the shape, we'll start playing with color, but I'm convinced it's much better to have the right shape in the wrong color than it is to have the right color in the wrong shape. That's great information. I've, I've never thought of it that way. So <laughs> that's like you said, man, you got it down to a science. <laughs> Uh, that's a ten, that's a ten, 10 hours a day every day for 45 days does right that's why i got you on the podcast man yeah yeah you start to think about things and you know and, and there's lots of guys who catch a lot of fish doing different than we do and that's fan that's what's great and i i love to talk to those guys because i want to know what they're doing and kind of combine it into what we do but you know what i do different and you can kind of probably attest to this is you may go down to Trenton with one of your buddies. You guys both know how to fish. So you don't have to worry about that guy, right? You know he's not going to get snagged. You, you know he knows how to get out. You know he knows how to retie. So you can go to lots of places, and you can maybe use a little bit uh, softer rod because you kind of know what that bite's going to feel like. You can maybe snap your jig a little bit more and put a little slack in your line. Mm -hmm. um, I'm fishing with guys who may have never fished before, and I've got five hours to make them good jiggers. Right. So a short, stiff rod that they can control, a heavy jig that they can feel, teaching them how to lift the jig real slow, drop the jig on a tight line so there's never any slack in the fishing line. Um, all that stuff that we do is designed simply to help people who don't have a feel for jig fishing to give them their three, four, or five hours trip and let them enjoy it, right? Right. So we've kind of simplified it and went to the far opposite end of what used to be considered normal light jigs, you know, long, soft rods, kind of snapping the jig a little bit. We don't do any of that. Not that that doesn't work. It's just, if you don't have a lot of experience, it's really, really hard to fish that way. So, and what's funny is I started to develop a system for my customers. I started fishing that way. I started catching more fish and more big fish every year than I ever caught doing it quote unquote, right. So, you know, everybody's got their own way and everybody should fish their own way, but everybody should also myself included, Try something different every year. Fish a little bit stiffer rod. Slow down your jigging motion. Uh, try some things you haven't tried before because you might be surprised that you find either something works better or you find a time that that works better. And now you've got more, more stuff in your repertoire that you can adapt to the conditions because now you're comfortable jigging a different way than you jig all the time. Gotcha. And then that, that goes along with playing around with things too, about how the fish are biting. I mean, do, do you throw a live bait on, uh, do you add a stinger hook, things like that? Like how are the fish, you know, attacking your bait? And you can kind of see that sometimes you'll bring up your jig and you know, half of it's missing, you know, that they're hitting it back a little bit further. <laughs> so some guys that may not know about the Detroit river, you know, a lot of guys really hook up with stinger hooks too. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. I, I don't, I won't put a jig to the bottom without a stinger hook on it. Gotcha. Uh, everything we, Everything we put to the bottom has a steering hook on it. Um, you know, and again, we spent hours and hours and hours with different steering hooks, different line, uh, different attachments, different hooks, different hook styles. Uh, and we settled on 14-pound Berkley XT, uh, an abrasion-resistant mono that actually floats. And we settled on a size 10 light wire round bend treble hook. Now, we tried size 10, size 8, and size 6 trebles. And what we found out was our hooking percentage was better 
as the hook got bigger. So if we hooked uh, 10 fish with the size 10, we hooked 12 with the size 8, and 14 or 15 with the size 6. The problem was, as the hook got bigger, we hooked more fish, but we also lost more fish. Because a lot of times with that stinger hook, you're right in the roof of the mouth inside, and that little bit of skin on the top of the mouth, or you're on the side just grabbing a little bit of skin. And what we found out is as that hook gets bigger, the wire diameter of the hook gets gets larger, more of that rips out. So we may not hook as many fish, or the hooking percentage may not be as good with a size 10, but our holding percentage is exponentially higher. So we went with a few less hookups, but land most of those as opposed to more hookups and only land about 50%. Yeah, and you guys that go and jig the Detroit River, you'll be surprised how many fish you bring up are just hanging on by that stinger hook, and you're going to be like, thank God I had that thing on there. <laughs> you know, and, and the other thing that we do pretty religiously is I do not put the stinger hook in the worm. I leave the stinger hook hang, and that's why we wanted a light wire stinger hook and light monoline that would actually float up above. Um, if, if you think about it, right, the way, the way a fish bites anything, but especially in the river, is they have to – you know, sucking a volume of water to get that jig in their mouth. The less aggressive they are, the less force they're going to use to pull an object towards them, right? Mm -hmm. So if you take that stinger hook and you hook it into the back of your worm, that fish still has to move that worm and or that jig to get that stinger hook in his mouth. Right. So he's still got to move quite a bit. If you let that stinger hook hang, that fish can actually suck that stinger hook in I got you. So it's going to be easier for him to suck that thing in because it's free floating and not attached. Okay. Catch a lot more fish because it's going to be a whole lot easier for him to get that stinger hook into his mouth. Right. Okay. Well, if you're a guy in the <laughs> if you're the guy in the boat, you bring extra stinger hooks. You can sell them to your buddies if they didn't bring them. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Well, awesome. So, hey, you know, the other thing, too, is you talked earlier um, when you were talking about your career about how you love being a fish educator. And, um, you know, you fish Saginaw Bay, you fish uh, you know, Lake Erie. What are what else are you doing to educate folks other than just the Detroit River? Because really, like you said, it's only for about four to six weeks. Right. Yeah. So I obviously, you know, we once we leave Detroit, we, we leave Detroit the Sunday after Mother's Day. We go up, we spend all summer on Saginaw Bay. Um and then we go to Lake Erie in the fall. But, you know, not only do we do charters, but we also do what we call Fishing Education Weekend. And and we do three of those a year. Uh, this year we're at Houghton Lake, Saginaw Bay, and our traditional trip in November down to Lake Erie. And what, what a four-day fishing weekend it is, is guys come, they bring their own boats. And what we do is we put together a four-day weekend of workshops, seminars, uh, sharing information on the water. So you'll, you'll show up Thursday. We'll do some workshops. If you want to go fishing, you can go fishing. We'll have some learning opportunities, some uh, some workshops, some seminars. Guys there, guys, you know, Jeff that owns TrackStack comes. And we talk about boat rigging, and we usually have a couple uh, tackle guys there. And then we get together Thursday night. We have a dinner. We have a guest speaker do a seminar. We get together Friday morning, have breakfast together as a group. We have a little fishing meeting after breakfast. Uh, here's where to go. Here's some waypoints to try. Here's some techniques. Guys head out. We share information either on the radio or through the cell phone on the water with our group. Here's where I caught my fish. Here's what I'm doing. So everybody gets all the information live as it's happening. Uh, we come back together. We have dinner together that night. We have a couple workshops. And then we have a main seminar that kind of takes what happened today, kind of wraps it up. And then we meet together again uh, on Saturday for breakfast and do the same thing again. We do that for four days. So you're getting education on the off the water, 
You got the ability to take that education to the water, try it, try some things that are a little bit different, a little uncomfortable for you, and then come back at So it's a constant process of seminar, try it, ask questions, another seminar, try it again. And by the time you leave there, you've mastered the techniques that we're trying to teach you based on where the event is. See, I really like this because, you know, a lot of guys that you talk to from, um, you know, I've got some fishing buddies in Minnesota and, uh, you know, elsewhere. When they think about coming to Erie and Saginaw Bay, I mean, these can be pretty intimidating bodies of water. Yep. And, you know, to where to start, you know, there's a ton of fish in there. You know, there's a ton of walleye in there, but not only are these, um, you know, like for Lake Erie is super shallow. It's also means it's very dangerous. So I feel like coming to these fishing seminar weekends and things like that, you can kind of learn the waters. Um, not only, uh, um, you know, are you learning how to fish the waters, but you're learning the safety of the waters, where to go in and out at. And, uh, maybe you can make that trip over and you'll feel more comfortable going on these bodies of water. And we take we take care of everything, right? So, you know, it's one price and it includes everything except your cost to go fishing. So, uh, it's dinner Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's breakfast Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's lodging Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's boat storage. It's boat launch. It's all the seminars. All that stuff is taken care of. So, you know, our our Ohio trips we always do the first weekend in November, kind of trying to get on some big fish down Lake Erie. And, you know, we have a hundred to 120 guys. And then our summer trip on Saginaw Bay, um, you know, we'll run 25 to 40, depending on the year. And then this year we're going to Houghton Lake to do a walleye in the weed trip. Um, you know, and we'll run 25 or 30 guys there. So not only are you getting good education based strictly on what's happening right now, we're going to cut the learning curve down. We're going to put you in the right place. We're going to make it easy to get the tackle because we're going to, you know, Get this stuff, learn how to do this, and then you can add to your tackle selection later if you're going to a place you've never been before. And you've got the information. As it's happening live on the water, guys are reporting and telling them what you're doing. So maybe maybe you're fishing in 20 feet of water and the guys are catching them in 30. Well, you just figured out you need to get out to 30 feet of water. So it's a constant learning process with the ability to get instant feedback and the ability to ask questions right after the fishing day figure out what you did wrong, get dialed in so you can go back out the next day and do it better. That's awesome. What about if you don't have a boat? Can you still show up to this thing? Absolutely. If you don't have a boat, you can come. We will assign you a roommate or a boat captain, or if you have a boat and you don't have anybody to bring with you, um, we always have you know some guys who don't have a boat or don't have the right boat for the conditions. Or, you know, a lot of guys come and, and what will happen is they'll go, you know, hey, I'm not set up for trolling Lake Erie. I don't have planter boards. I don't have this. I don't have that. Well, come, we'll put you in a boat with somebody, maybe a different guy each day if you want to do that. And now you get to see how three boats are rigged and how guys rig their rod holders and how guys use their line counters and how guys set their lines and how guys, you know, set their planer boards. Everybody sets their planer boards a little bit different, right? So now you've got experience fishing with three different guys over the course of three days. So now you can take all that information and get your boat ready to work the best for how you're going to fish. So it's not just the fishing and taking home some fish. It's the whole process of learning from other guys, seeing how they rig their boats, seeing how they do things, and then having the, the guest speakers and the seminar speakers come and say, you know, here's what we do, and having all that information in four days and being able to go out and try it all and then leaving there going, okay, this is what I want to work on. This is what I need to get. This is, I know for a fact, I need to buy this instead of trying to guess if that's the right equipment to buy. Something like this would be worth the price of admissions alone just to learn how that 
different guys troll what you know like you said what boards work for them what setups and rods and rod holders work for them you're going to see i'm sure a vast majority or a vast variety of different ways and different ways to skin the cat but you know something like that if you're ever overwhelmed by trolling i think something like this would be super super beneficial you know, and a lot of guys don't like don't like big water right they're, they're they're kind of afraid of big water so you know maybe it's it's something as simple as coming to lake erie fishing with a, a guy for the first day and learning how to handle your boat in rough water yeah right and then, and then you take your boat off the second and third day so it, it, it's just a great place to just imagine all that knowledge with a hundred fishermen and you know five or six full-time guides that that work for me or staff for me or teach a ton of electronics knowledge uh, both in Lawrence and Hummingbird, uh, guy, we bring our guy that's that's a full-time boat rigger. Uh, like I said, Jeff from Trackstack comes uh, to talk about boat rigging. I mean, just all the stuff that happens, right? It's just amazing what you can learn, and and you've got all of that knowledge in one spot, right? Mm -hmm. What a way to learn and get better at what you're doing. No, I agree 100%. That's what I was saying earlier. Those those guys who might think of, um, you know, Lake Erie and Saginaw Bay being bigger, intimidating bodies of water, maybe you stick to, maybe you live in Michigan and you just kind of fish, you know, inland lakes. Here's your opportunity to get on the water in really a, a comfortable environment and uh, non-intimidating environment. It's not like you're showing up, you know, to impress anybody or to fish a tournament. Here's your shot to go out there and, like you said, learn it from the start, handle your boat better. I, I love it. It's it's perfect. Where can <laughs> where can people go um, maybe to find out more education um, opportunities like this fishing education weekend? Uh, if they go to our website at walleye101.com, uh, that has everything there. Um, there's a, a one-click link to our charters. There's a one-click link to the fishing education weekend. Now, the site is not... Uh, a beautiful site. We're actually in the process of redesigning. Uh, and if any of your folks have ever redesigned a website, uh, it's a process. So we're, we're trying to get uh, one spot to put all of our articles and all of our Facebook stuff and all of our interviews. Uh, we're trying, trying to build a site that does all that. So the site is not a fancy looking site, but you can get all the information you need there. Our store is there to buy all of our tackle. You can find out about our charters, find out about our fishing education weekends. Uh, if you're on Facebook, the Lance Balance, it's uh, actually the Walleye 101 uh, Educational Forum. Uh, Asked to be part of that. We've got you know 11,000 guys there sharing information. So guys are sharing fishing reports. They're asking questions. They're you know talking about boat rigging. What sonar do I use? What? It's just a great way to learn. And, and I'm really really proudly of you know you're you're around this area. I think we've done a really really good job of putting a good group of people together, a mass of people that are willing to share information, which is really, really rare in the fishing world. And the thing I'm most proud of is we created a situation where guys not only are willing to share, but they also are looking for people to help because they, they, they're starting to realize that's a whole lot funner to help somebody else catch fish than it is to go out, just go out and catch your fish. Yeah. And, and, and I'm really that, proud of what we've accomplished. No, I agree a hundred percent. And that's why I, I, you know, I've always felt comfortable talking to you even at the shows or going to your website. Like you said, on the forum, guys are just so open, but you know, like you did, like you say, you go to the boat launch and you see someone coming out with all those fish, you know, sometimes it can be that awkward exchange of, uh, Oh, were you catching them at? Or, you know, if, if you do your research ahead of time, you listen to podcasts like this one or go to your website, there's so much knowledge out there. I feel like, like you said, it, I, 
I feel like we're getting better though, as a fishing community about, about sharing things and, and making people more successful. We're not obviously there yet, but it's people like you <laughs> and your website, you know, making it more enjoyable to everyone. So that way we can keep our sport alive and, you know, not get people discouraged and I don't know, go do something else, which <laughs> I can't imagine doing anything else besides fishing. Yeah, you know, we've got our members only group, which, which is a, a, a membership you pay for every year. We do a meeting once a month, and it's kind of the hardcore guys. It's guys that kind of bought into what we do and said, you know, I really want to be part of this. And and, and you should see some of the things our guys are doing. I, I would tell you, I would take our members group up against anybody in the country on teaching you how to not only use BASIC, but dig deep and get all the features out of using your Lowrance product. Uh, our guys dig into... You know, our guys are talking about how depth on a crankbait is different going with, against, or sideways to the current. A lot of our guys are running uh, smart troll products, so they know uh, if their bait is in current and if it's one foot higher than it should be based on the precision trolling data because they're trolling into a wind or a current. Uh, our, our, we just had this group of guys who were just absolutely nuts about the science and the reason behind fishing and want to learn it. And that's our members only group. And they have, you will see them underneath their uh, registration. There will be a big white oval uh, and it'll say, well, I want one members. If you see one of those guys ever anywhere, uh, one of the things that we absolutely hundred percent expect of them is if someone needs help, they provide help. And I know our members for, I know for a fact our guys hand out more jigs and more plastics and more crankbaits and more crankbait snaps and more of this. And they help people. They spend more time at a boat ramp calibrating reels for guys. Uh, if you see one of our members, make sure if you have a, a question, ask them. They will give you a good answer and get you headed into the right direction to have a much, much more successful day on the water. I love it. I love it. And then for everyone out there again, um, you know, Lance obviously, uh, has got this down to a science. I believe it's Lance Valentine signature series tackle. Is that on your website as well? That that's on the website. Yep. Our jigs, worms, uh, stinger hooks, rods, uh, the line that we use, everything we have on our website, I'll make it easy. Everything we have on our website is what we use and everything that we use is on the website. We're not a tackle store. Uh, we sell the tackle that we know absolutely 100% works. So if it's on the store, we use it. And we use it exclusively, and we use it to catch fish every single day. So we're not trying to sell you a tackle. We're not really a tackle store. We just know what stuff works. We've designed stuff that we're very proud of and we know works. And that's the actually the only place you can get our jigs, worms, plastics, stinger hooks, and all that is actually through our website at uh, walleye101.com and click on the store. Awesome. Well, Lance, listen, man, I kept you over an hour. I really appreciate it, buddy, uh, coming on here, and I hope everyone's more successful after listening to this podcast on the Detroit River or feel more comfortable going to that body of water. Again, remember to hit up Lance uh, at his website at walleye101.com, and, uh, yeah, I guess good luck this season. <laughs> well, you know, I'm charter fishing now, so I, I had a group of guys last year who were with me Two years ago, and two years ago, we had a five-hour trip. We caught 14 fish. Uh, smallest fish was 28 inches. Each of the guys in the boat got a fish over 31 inches. So we had four fish over 31. Each one of the guys got one. Last year, we went out, fished the same five hours, never caught a fish over 25 inches, but we caught 67 keepers between, between 16 and 25 inches. And I asked them at the end of the trip, I says, what trip was better? 
and they said, we'll take this any day ever catching a couple big ones. So um, my job is to make my customers happy. And believe it or not, if, if guys only get once or twice a year to come, they'd rather handle 25, 30, two to six pound fish than they would catch that one big fish. So, um, you know, I'm a lucky dude, Lee. I, I'll tell you what, I, I wake up every day knowing that I've been dreaming the last 15 years and I'm going to have to put a tie on and go back to the bank. So um, I have been living a dream for, for about 20 years now and so thankful that I get to do it every day. Don't ever go back, man. Don't ever go back. <laughs> I agree. Thanks. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Good luck. All right, bye. Talk to you soon. See you, man. There it is, folks. That should be everything that you need to get going on the Detroit River Walleye Run. Um, I want to thank Lance again for coming over to uh, to share his time with us. Remember to visit walleye101.com. Also, remember, if you find this podcast helpful, click that five-star button and uh, leave your comments below, and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you all very much, and uh, we'll see you next time.